Hello, this is KP from the In On Health podcast. We are taking a break to recharge the batteries as summer concludes in the US. I wanted to share one of our most popular episodes of this podcast, Dr. Brittany James in Chicago. The conversation is entitled Confronting Racism and Racial Disparities in Healthcare Systems. Brittany, my good friend, who has a twin sister who's also a medical doctor, shares some of her deeply personal stories growing up as a black woman in Ohio, becoming a medical doctor, and then launching the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine. She's one of our nation's leading advocates around confronting racial disparities in our healthcare system, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So good to have you with us, Brittany. We've gotten to know each other this year. You've been doing so much important work out in Chicago and and nationally. So we feel really honored to have you on the In On Health podcast today. Um, And I look forward to uh, discussing many, many important themes. So thank you for being with us. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. Been looking forward to this. And I'm super excited about our chat. Excellent. So for those listening in, um, today we have Dr. Brittany James. She has a really incredible story growing up in Ohio in a really challenging situation and ultimately becoming a medical doctor, not just her, but her twin sister. We'll hear a bit about that. And being on the front end of working on issues of racism and racial disparities and racial injustice in medicine and in healthcare. So I'm really, really excited about this conversation. And to get us kicked off, um, Brittany, tell me a bit more and our listeners about kind of your experience growing up and and what led you to Cornell and then ultimately becoming a physician? Yeah. So, man, it, I will say if I'm definitely not one of the people who grew up thinking they'd be a doctor at all. There are no doctors in my family. There's no healthcare folks in my family. Uh, even growing up, there wasn't even, you know, black doctors really like that on TV or just around in real life. And so it always seemed like this thing that was so far away and really for people who are just not like me. Where I grew up um, in Ohio is uh, called Twinsburg, Ohio, and I do have a twin sister. It was founded by twins. My parents didn't move there because they had twins. I get that question all the time. <laughs> it just it was a huge twin festival. It's it, On some sides, it actually was a very idyllic place to grow up. We had an amazing school system, but it was segregated. Uh, I tell people this, I can't really believe it. And, and honestly, I can't explain it any other way than to say when you're growing up in that environment, it's normal. So it, I it just it did. And remember, uh, I'm going to date myself. This is like pre-internet. This is back. So we couldn't even log on and, you know, interact with people who are different than you. You're just the, the level of isolation pre-internet. Uh, I just want to emphasize that. So how I grew up seemed really normal. But what it was, was the part of town I grew up in uh, was predominantly black and uh, poor. And then the other part of town um, was predominantly white. They had uh, more money, but what was interesting was that we were small enough that we all went to the same school system. Okay. Um, so I had this really unique experience of being a minority at school and then being a majority and being in a community of people that look like me when I went home. And I think that uh, just unique experience really ultimately set me up for um, being a practicing physician on the South Side and who really um, 
deals with uh, health dis- racial health disparities, even though at the time I would have never thought I would end up here at all. I, I grew up, I, I always loved science. I was always just a really curious kid. I think what was really lucky about me was that my parents really nurtured that spark of curiosity. Even though, you know, my dad, he, you know, had a number of different jobs. We always struggled. We struggled financially, but they were so good at making sure we had the things that mattered, you know, including love, support, and just a belief uh, that you can be anything. Really, they told us that education was really the way to have a better life. And so we worked really hard in school. I had heard of the Ivy Leagues. I heard that it's where smart people went. I kid you not. I didn't really know much about that. Right. I didn't get much by way of counseling. So literally, I'm going to date myself. I think KP will know about this as well. But MapQuest, we literally went on MapQuest, and we, which was a pre- precursor to Google Maps, um, where you had to manually put in all the addresses. They gave you a million steps. Long story short, we did that for all of the Ivy League schools. We found out Cornell was the closest to our house, applied their early decision. And that's that that was it. And the other thing I think to understand how I ended up the way that I did end up is to also understand that our where I grew up was profoundly racist. I have the words to understand that now. I didn't, as I was coming up through it, I didn't have the words to understand why people who lived in the part of town I lived in didn't have access to the public pool. Kid you not kid you not. Wow. There was a lot of, um, they did a lot of things with uh, how they drew, uh, I guess, the city limits. Mm-hmm. And what it turned into was that the part of town I lived in didn't have access to the school pool, uh, the public pool. Um, we couldn't get passes there. Um, most of the people who were underperforming were black and brown, except for me and my sister. And mm. uh, we were one of the very few people that, you know, were in advanced placement classes. And I'll, I'll to show you how uh, how far I've come, I cringe every time this I tell this story. But, you know, I'm, I'm all about telling the truth, even if it makes me look terrible, because this is true. I remember uh, I had... Um, several classmates, white classmates, when I was in the AP classes and said, you know, I don't think of you as black. Right. And they meant it as a compliment. Classic comment. Yeah, it's supposed to be a compliment, but here we go. Right. And I remember at the time saying, oh, I, I, rem- I would never forget this. I said, thank you. Like I and that's what I want people to understand. It's, I, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it. But when I think about racism, I, I think about that, that it's not just the, you know, having a lack of opportunities. It, it's what it does to your mind as a person of color. And I had inter- I had internalized the belief that being black meant that, you know, uh, I probably will you know, people probably are not naturally as, as smart or how else could I justify being proud to be compared to being um, white? And that was something, you know, I had internalized some shame about um, of being a person of color. So uh, I ended up going to the University of Michigan Medical School, a little bit closer uh, to home. So that transition to me from med school was brutal. Um, as we, we often uh, describe it as uh, if you're trying to, there's so much information coming at you and it's so fast and it's so much. Um, it, we always describe it as drinking, trying to drink uh, a fire hydrant. You're like uh, drinking it from a straw. That's what it's like. It's just eight hours, eight, and then you go and you study for more hours. And it was relentless. And on top of it, the stuff that I was learning, I, I started to really uh, early question some of the things that I was learning. Um, and what I mean by that was uh, 
there's this, I'm, I'm going to try to explain it since, you know, if you haven't been to med school, we're, we do such a good job of keeping everything a secret. Like, it's really mysterious what happens. But one thing that happens is um, when we're learning, for example, about high blood pressure or diabetes, we'll get taught, okay, if you see a black patient, they're more likely to have high blood pressure or diabetes. Mm-hmm. And what happens over time is you start associating blackness with disease. Right. And it, so many, it's it's every single disease. It's higher in African-Americans. And we didn't have the the, the nuance to be taught about the reasons why. Mm. And, and over time, and this is one of the insidious ways that racism creeps up in medicine. It's literally in our education system. We're taught mm. bias and we're taught it uh, to make snap decisions based on how someone looks and process. That's how we're, um, we're going by odds, they say. But at the same right. time, there's no nuance. So mm. it was hard. I struggled. You know, this, I really appreciate you giving that backdrop. I, I, you know, in this series, I feel like it's really important when we talk about health equity to really understand the stories of our leaders, because this is about personal purpose, about ways that people want to support their communities. And it's, it's not just words on paper. It's not just policy. It's, it's real life. So um, I appreciate you kind of giving that backdrop. Um, so now tell me, you know, fast forward, you're working in the south side of Chicago as an internal med doc with a federally qualified health center, if I, if I recall correctly. And then you're dealing with all kinds of things, all kinds of trauma, community health issues that are going on with black and brown populations in Southside. Then COVID pandemic hits. Walk us through kind of what happened, like, you know, and how the pandemic kind of evolved in your context. And I mean, there was such a significant human toll that that you experience like with your patients in the communities. So just explain to me what that was like and then how you were processing that through the lens of, of race and racism in the health system as you see it. Yeah. So I'm a family doc. I get internal med doc a lot. Internal med uh, deals with patients over 18. Family med, we do, we're very proud of our cradle to grave. So I I take care of everybody. Okay, great. Thanks for the correction. No problem. I see a 13 year old. It matters because uh, I I see the toll of it through the lifespan through my patients. Like it's just almost like witnessing multiple lifetimes and just see how racial oppression over time affects the body and the mind. But to your to your question, first of all, I worked at a federally qualified health center for six years, so I am well versed in the system. More than one, um, I've always worked in the South Side or, or um, South of Chicago. Um, and so um, my patients have always been primarily black and that was something that I wanted. Um, I mm. know, uh, you know, it's just a special reward, but really actually just I'm able to relax. Actually, I'm not under that white gaze, as we call it, where you have to sort of perform and prove that you're uh, a professional, even after we get the MD, the white coat. That's the thing I think to, to, to understand is when you're a black, especially black woman provider, you're already you're fighting two battles. You have to fight the battle, you know, on behalf of your patients of color, but also you're fighting a system that doesn't view you as equally just valuable or uh, it's just hard to move through as a person of color because it is a racist system. It just is. Um, but. Uh, I think when you look at the pandemic, I I will say we were already limping along. What's been really um, interesting, I guess, is to see the the way in which the world has caught up (laughs) with Mm. what uh, us as black people in medicine have seen for so long and just have sort of been 
throwing it, shouting into the void. And I don't want to say it that way because public health is certainly, you know, of course, public health isn't perfect either, but they're further than medicine by mm-hmm. a lot in okay. terms of identifying, you know, social determinants of health. At the end of the day, walking into this pandemic, we were already looking at profound disparities for black and brown communities in, you know, maternal mortality, black women dying four times the rate of white women. Neonatal um, mortality, you know, the study came out that black children are more likely to die under the care of a white pediatrician compared to a black pediatrician. High blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, cancer screening, and just about every life expectancy, um, surgical outcomes, pain management, and literally such a robust body of knowledge that we essentially live in a segregated healthcare system. We can trace this all the way back to slavery. We can chase it through Jim Crow. And you don't even have to be a slave-descended Black person. We can look at our, um, yeah, to our immigrant community and look at, you know, if you're Black or Brown, you know, there's just the different experiences that happen within a generation of being here, you know, what happens to your health. But I think all of that was the backdrop. So I just remember, you know, we first had heard about COVID and it just seemed so far away. I'm talking like December, January, Right. You know, you've heard the rumblings, but we had always learned in med school pandemic every 100 years. So at the back of your head is like, is this the big one? Mm. And it just it to be on the south side, to be in a fellow qualified health center, to be in a place where your resources are already thin to see this onslaught. It was right. devastating. It was devastating. And really the disparities that came out in terms of, hey, you know, different rates of black, higher rates of black people getting COVID and black and brown people. And then uh, later not having that same access to health care or the vaccine. We saw it coming because the building blocks were there and uh, it was it was traumatic. <laughs> I will say I, I kind of describe it as, you know, in many ways, I'm, I'm, I am so privileged. I live in an ivory tower. I have an MD. I have, uh, you know, financial security. I have those things that protect me as a black person in this world, but it's also a vicarious trauma. Uh, I would have multiple patients every week um, saying a family member died, my brother died, my dad died. My It was just back to back to back. And when there's no resources, when there's nowhere to send them, when the nearest uh, vaccine place or testing center in the early days was, you know, so close by a car ride, but my patients couldn't get a car. They had to ride the bus or they didn't have transportation they were homeless so close yet so far away it was it was horrible and I don't know if people know this widely but you know uh, the suicide rate for white Americans fell during this time but went up by almost 100% for black Americans so whereas before black folks have been you know resilient in that way where they had lower rates of suicide it actually went up 100% and I to me that is so dark and so symbolic that I think with that with George Floyd and just the racial unrest I think it was just it's it was too much it was too much that's 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 really, really, really um, sad to hear. How do you, as a medical doctor, working in the pandemic and working in these communities, how, what about your mental health? What about your well-being as a woman of color clinician? I mean, this work is really hard. You're dealing with very challenging situations every day, and people are leaning on you for their wellness and for their life, for, in some cases for their livelihood or their, their, well, their overall well-being of their family as well. How do you cope with that as a as a clinician as well? 
man, it's hard. It was real hard. And yeah, I have a I have a young daughter. Um, I was breastfeeding at that time, and it's it's just a it's a big thing to carry. And I remember me, my husband and I had this ritual that you know as soon as we walk in the door, we immediately um, you know strip, go into the shower. You're like trying to wash it off. It's it just becomes an obsession, and and then you're isolated. You're not seeing anybody. Um, it was it was horrible. It was really really horrible. And I I remember at the end of the day, what keeps you going is just like, man, there is nobody else. It's just this dark knowledge. And I really fell back on my oath. And um, I just remember thinking to myself, like, one, this will pass. This too, this too shall pass. This right. will pass. And I just saw the numbers and I saw what my, heard the stories of my patients. And I just know that in 10 years, 20 years, I wanted to say that I did. I don't want to get emotional. I wanted to be able to say that I did everything that I could. Mm. Mm. That's and what it came down to. That's what it came down to. Yeah. No, it's some because people, I mean, the clinician burnout and even clinician suicide during this pandemic, it's been horrific that, you know, the, these medical doctors really putting their lives on the line every day to try to take care of other people who are suffering and then also dying. And um, we just appreciate everything you guys do because we, we wouldn't have gotten through this without you guys. So look, so I want to transition into talking about this construct of racism in medicine and you know you're the co-founder with your sister of the institute for anti-racism in medicine did i get that right you got it good you got it and um this is a challenging topic for our country and for people who are really thoughtful and want to try to really unpack this it's hard um so what i wanted to do is um before we talk about why you founded your institute I just wanted you to, because you, you teach on this, you teach courses on race theory and racism in medicine. So I wanted to kind of have our listeners benefit from you kind of explaining what racism in medicine is, because the conversation that we often have in our country, which is an important one, is about social determinants of health. Great question. Uh, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> um, so I think the first thing right off the cuff that pe- most people don't uh, or people should understand is that when we talk about we have to take it all the way back to what does it mean to what is a race? What is it? Um, because a lot of people think that uh, that people who are um, in the same race, um, that it's a biological reality. What do I mean by that? They think that you and me, if we pull, it's a proxy or it's a surrogate for your genetic makeup. And mm. so that's the whole basis of biomedical, uh, you know, this this biological racism is, is what we call it. This idea that um, there is something about the physical bodies of black people or people of different races that is fundamentally different. And this is a racist concept. But you most people don't realize that it is because it is so ubiquitous in, in, in our world and in medicine. Um, for and, and this is something that is baked into medicine, the whole in the healthcare and everything we deliver. Put it, putting it in another way, when we think of the social determinants of health, um, we can understand that those affect uh, and limit the health opportunities of black people more than, say, a white person. We can all understand that. What I'm talking about, though, that's true. And medicine as an institution itself creates racial oppression in a number of ways. One way that they do it is uh, this this 
resounding idea that that races are biologically distinct entities. So what I mean by that, how does that look? That's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. How does that actually look? You can think of it in three ways. There's three areas where it becomes really important. The first one is biomed, is in our research. Our research studies, um, and this is how you're gonna, now you're gonna connect to JAMA and that you're gonna see why that is, why we're fighting so hard to make sure that our research uh, journals are putting out research that is not racist. Um, a lot of the journals, uh, which is the foundation of our authority as physicians, our biomedical research is what we say sets us apart from your run-of-the-mill, you know, you know, we have a lot of derisive terms, unfortunately, for people who are not in Western medicine. But medicine claims that our research sets us apart. We are evidence-based. But mm. when, you, when you peel back the layer and you look at that research, you'll see that most, just about all of our research treats races as being biologically real. So the entire, when you get that, a lot of the house of cards starts to to crumble. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is that the medical evidence itself that is being generated to drive everything that's happening in medicine, implicit in that is this construct that biologically, genetically, people of color are, I'm going to use the word inferior, because it sounds like that's what you're saying, Correct. to other races. And therefore, what you're saying is it's embedded in all the body of evidence that's been coming out for decades. And so that's a fundamental flaw. That's at least what I'm hearing you say. Is that you correct? Are, you've nailed it. Let me give you an example that that, that tells you how, how um, ubiquitous it is. You, you nailed it exactly. Here's a real example. Uh, JAMA. <laughs> I think Can you explain what JAMA is? Oh, yes. So, sorry. JAMA is the Journal of the American Medical Association. The AMA, or the American Medical Association, is the largest group um, that represents physicians in America. They're huge. They're one of the largest lobby groups as well of the American government. So uh, a lot of times the policy that is set by the American Medical Association becomes pol national policy. The journal is, is underneath that umbrella of the American Medical Association, but because they are a research publication, they do have editorial independence, meaning they are part of it, but, you know, they, they operate on their own. And for since the inception, <laughs> they have been generating uh, racist research. They're as one of our largest publications and most influential. And they are global. When they do that, they are shaping the field in a way that is very dangerous. Mm, OK, so so let's talk a bit about that. So um, the Journal of the American Medical Association um, has been under fire recently. And you've been involved with a number of national leaders, Congress, the AMA, around on this very important issue um, that came out of JAMA. Why don't you explain for the people listening what happened, what you and your colleagues did, and why in terms of medical activism, and what you see as the path forward? Yeah, so... Would, I hope you can see now that when um, a leading publication is is problematic, we have a big problem. Uh, and let me also just give a detour to put this in context. Um, the 
the sorts of studies that came out of JAMA, that have come out of JAMA in our medical, leading medical journals, they go on to shape how we treat you. They go on to shape uh, how we diagnose you. Um, We have, many people also don't realize that we have different diagnosis criteria based on your race. When you get a sheet of your blood work, we determine what's normal and abnormal differently based on your race. So um, it's harder for a black person, say, to get diagnosed with kidney failure. It takes longer for them. Uh, They will rank lower. Um, It takes more time for them to get on the transplant list compared to a white person with the same numbers. All these things are baked into and creating um, uh, disparities. So I'll say that. But what happened was, uh, so all this stuff is happening under the surface, but what happened was they released a podcast that said, and a tweet to announce it saying, no physician is racist, so how can there be racism in medicine, essentially? And it was two individuals, um, two white men having a conversation um, about uh, racism, and and the thrust of it was uh, (laughs) the whole saying, I um, I don't uh, think that basically racism isn't real. It sounds like it's really just socioeconomic. It was it was chaos. I encourage you to to listen to it. But but essentially it was um, putting forth an idea that racism is a fallacy, that it was gone in the 60s after the Civil Rights Act and that it's no longer impacting health. And he also went on to say that, you know, it's offensive to to call people racist and shuts down the conversation. And let's just talk about socioeconomics because it's too offensive to talk about racism and it's not even real. That's that's the, the thrust of it. So this gets to what we're talking about earlier, which is really making a case that social determinants of health, and if you're poor, that's more of a driver of worse health outcomes than your race. Though what we also know in the peer-reviewed literature is that if you look at black people of all socioeconomic levels, we have worse health outcomes compared to other groups at all socioeconomic levels. In other words, if you compare a poor white person and even a more wealthy black person, that more wealthy black person's health outcomes will still be worse. And I think we have a lot of research to understand why. I don't think we don't really know why. We, we have maybe some hypotheses about the stress of being black in America. Like there's so many things that are, people are starting to research to try to figure out why that's the case. But I find that fascinating. If we give this person grace and the best of intention, then what he's really showing is a bias. Because if you don't believe that, how can you do effective research? If your starting place is that racism doesn't exist, then clearly you won't be asking the questions that uncover why racism is an issue, right? You won't even, you won't even be asking the questions, which is what you're talking about. It skews the whole research landscape. And I don't think a lot of people maybe understand how deep that is, but maybe you can give more um, layers of, of insight into that. Cause that's, as I'm hearing you, that's what's going through my mind. You're, you're nailing it. And to be clear, you know, the people on the podcast, this was not Howard Bachner himself on the podcast. These were, you know, this was um, high ranking editors, um, but not Howard Bachner. Howard Bachner is the editor in chief. He's the big honcho. So I know, you know, that particular editor um, did, uh, he, he, didn't make it. <laughs> he was, you know, uh, I can't remember if he resigned or stepped down or is removed, but he, the person who actually held the podcast 
was removed. But when we called for an investigation, we called for investigation on Howard Bachter, the editor-in-chief. And that's because all of this had been going on under his reign. And the other thing to understand is, is um, for us, it, the, the podcast got the attention, but it was really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, what we had heard from our, you know, if it was just a podcast and, and that was a one-off, it'd be a one, it'd be really bad. Don't get me wrong. But, but I think the the pivot for us and what we hope are trying helping uh, want people to understand is that it's a much bigger issue than that. Um, when you know the reports that we got, what we've heard, and what we know, even just experiencing ourselves as physician researchers of color, um, there's a long history of JAMA not centering um, racist racism. That they sort of have this stance that it's more socioeconomics. There is, you know, it, what's what's really gets you is that the body of of, of literature outside of medicine documenting the effects of racism on the body, how it raises your cortisol long time. Cortisol is a, you know, is a flight or flight hormone. It is not supposed, it's meant to be there on a short term. When it stays in your body too long from basically long-term stress, racial stress, it does, it breaks down your body in a bad way. The, 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 the science is there that, that racism affects our mental health, but our physical body probably contributing to our higher rates of chronic disease in and of itself. But what we saw out of JAMA uh, was a blocking of that scholarship, making it to uh, the medical community. Uh, we have stories of folks literally, you know, getting their papers rejected, saying cross out the word racism and change it to something that's less offensive. So we're talking about an actual blocking of scholarship around racism that he was at the helm of. And, you know, the other thing as an activist, it's really important for us to make sure that we're involving people who have first-aid experience. So actually, a lot of people were terrified to speak out against JAMA. We had to have anonymous comments. We had people working within JAMA saying this person is a nidus of racism and, and you know, has not been following through. So really for us and for me, you know, as an activist, I, I think our role is to be conduits and to, to uplift the voices of people who are living it, whether that's researchers themselves of color, whether that's patients, you know, and, and what we heard resoundingly is that JAMA is not fulfilling its duty to be uh, editorially neutral. Further than that, actually, they're blocking scholarship on something on, a, on a, a topic that has, you know, profound effects on minority health. It, it's unconscionable. When we think about your Institute of um, Anti-Racism in Medicine, you are through that, and you can explain to our listeners what that is. You're trying to actually build curriculum and start early in the training of clinicians to give them tools so that they can be better clinicians, they can be better advocates for their patients, they can understand how to engage this topic and, and ultimately kind of root it out of the system. So explain to me um, how we think about language, how we get everyone around the table, because you know, if, if we know if we start with racist, it's just it's basically people that have the same views talking to each other. We're not really talking. We're not really having any conversation across views. Mm -hmm. Language is whenever I'm teaching racism, language is where I always start to make sure we're speaking the same language because mm -hmm. oftentimes we, we we're not even speaking the same language. So I the way one way to think about it is you know first of all the the definition of racism there's there's you you got to know what we're talking about because there's people will think of different definitions. The classic mm -hmm. one has been power plus 
privilege. So by that definition, you have to be white, essentially, or have some sort of social power in order to be racist. The other thing that people traditionally default to when, when you, they hear the word racist is that a racist is a bad person. And this mm-hmm. is probably the most, this is the first thing I try to dispel for people, for white people in particular, because it's their biggest block to, to really understanding this system. The, you know, this classic image of, you know, from the 60s, really, of a cross burning on someone's yard or, you know, the colored only sections. I think a lot of people have really been stuck in time and they have this idea that that's the only way to be racist. And it's just not not true. Racism has been around for hundreds of years since the 17th century, at least. Um, and it's 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 a system that you know can look different ways. It's changed form. Modern racism really is has has really been this sort of covert, this under the table, this not in your face sort of uh, uh, of discrimination. Um, so I think that's the first thing is if you think that you have to be you know outwardly you can only bad people are racist. It's, it's just not true. I actually favor the the definition of Ibram X. Kendi, um, which is, one, it makes it not a pejorative or not an insult to be called a racist. It just simply says, it's a descriptor, any any belief that one racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group is a racist idea. It's that simple. It really is that simple. And I think that that was such a pivotal uh, perspective and one that I hold, at least when I'm talking about racism, because it means that any of us and all of us by default are racist, including people of color. So I right. use that story. Um, you know, I talked about earlier um, when I was in high school and and uh, a, a, cl- a white classmate said, I don't think of you as black. And I and I was thought that was a good thing. I thought that was a compliment. That was me internalizing racism. That was me internalizing a racist idea that and I think white people need to understand that that we are just as affected by those belief systems as people of color. The difference is I believe inherently then I was taught that I'm inheriting less than a white person and less than as a because I'm a woman. So how I move to, through the world is with less confidence, with less belief in my own abilities, um, my own worth. That is internalized racism. In a, in, for me as a black woman, for internalized racism for a white person is going to be uh, maybe an, an understanding that uh, I deserve or, I, you know, or just not even that, just a silent, uh, a lot of times it's not conscious. Um, so a, a subconscious belief that, um, okay, if there's a robbery, I bet it was a black person, you know, or if I see a black person, I'm a little bit scared. Does that mean you're a bad person? I would argue not. I would argue that means admitting that and sitting with that is the first step to to undoing these toxic messages for all of us. Okay. Let me ask you a question. How does this look in a country like ours that is becoming increasingly brown and increasingly mixed race? Because right now we are, this conversation is, the construct we're using is black and white because it's a construct that facilitates ease in the conversation. But even if we look at our most recent census, our population is becoming increasingly brown and even our ability to track race and ethnicity data is becoming increasingly hard because we have so many biracial people of so many different mixes. So how do you think about as our country is changing, how does this racial construct and racism in medicine play out in a population that's more diverse, more biracial, you know, just generally more brown? What does it mean? 
Yeah, and um, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I'm married to a white man. I have a biracial daughter. I think about this a lot, and uh, I, I think your you your point is so important, which is yes, we are mixing more, and so it's getting harder to tell who belongs where because it was never real to begin with. <laughs> I hope people can look at the fact that we're struggling still to put people in boxes because it was never real. It was always made up, and so we're. And what sm- you're saying is race is a social construct. I'm sorry. Let me let me be very clear. Oh uh, yeah, what are yeah, what are you saying? Race is biologically races as biologically distinct entities is not real. What is real is the social construction, socio political construction of construction. race. Even though there is not biologically, you know, no black gene, for example. It's mm-hmm. very real what happens to black and brown people of color in this country when you are ascribed a minority status, a person of color status. That's what's real. And that's what we need to face. But, you know, what's going to happen? I, I hope that, that that starts to just break down those those walls and it just makes black black and brown people. We're, we're going to be forced to mix more. And, and but, you know, just us mixing isn't enough, I think. And this is why the work that I do with the Institute for Anti-Racism and Medicine and why we're so hell-bent on education is because and having conversations about these really difficult things even if it's hard because just us being together and being you know we've done this experiment in America where we have diversity here but we're still not getting along and so the question becomes how do we have conversations across racial divides that are meaningful Um, and I think the biggest thing for me and why I'm so passionate about this work is because when we um, refuse to connect and love people across racial lines, it's it's really a detriment. Uh, we're cut off as humans from each other. And mm-hmm. I think if I really, if I'm being, you know, full out, why this is so important is you have to look at what we're doing to the world, what we're doing to the environment, what we're doing to each other. And, and even in a global context, we've got to come together as a human community, uh, not just in America, but globally. Um, we've got to start coming together. We, you know, I often think, uh, I think some, I know my patients on the South side are brilliant, but they just don't have the chance. They're not seen by white people who are in power as being people who can contribute to our society or, or even, you know, having real humanity. So uh, I think it's going to get harder and harder for people to continue to exist in their silos. I think it's important, though, that how we talk to each other, one, acknowledges the truth of what's happened um, between different racial groups and what's still going on. And that's what we try to focus on is bringing us all into the same plane of conversation. Right. So this is such a important and big and hard topic. And so for people listening, it's like, what do we do? How does this change? Like, so, so talk to me about, you know, some things that you think can happen that move us in the right direction, because we know that this type of change that we're talking about is going to take time. We also know in our society right now in the U.S., we're in a moment where things, this issue of racism in our society is front and center and it just feels like a moment where people are just going to demand change. So, so that's happening in our society. When we look at healthcare and medicine, like what are some concrete things that can happen that move the needle in the right direction and that get people engaged instead of, well, not engaged, not having conversation? 
Yeah, I tell people who, because every time I give a talk or anything, people feel like really overwhelmed. Where do I go? This is so big. What difference can I make? And you can definitely make a difference. And I think the first thing is to uh, identify what, what are the places that you have influence. Everybody has influence. I don't care who you are whether that's with a family member, whether you're a CEO, whether you're administrative assistant, what the first step is to identify what is it, who, where is my influence sit? Even if it's with your kids or how you teach your kid, there everyone has an influence. So identifying that um, and then working to exert influence in a positive way in that space. If you just do that, you're, you're doing a great thing. I think too often we get to, you know, I got to read another book. I got to. And so the other thing, um, at, at, you know, after you're identifying your influence is do an audit of your life. How many people of color are in your circle? Really? Not just people you are in coworkers with, but I'm people who have been to your home, people who know, people of color who know your family, that you know their family, that you have a genuine love for. And that's also up for most, most white people that can be a painful moment to realize, hey, I don't have, or even also looking at, you know, who are your service providers? Who's your doctor? Who is your teachers? And just, you can just do an audit of your life and maybe you are not as surrounded by diversity or, or are really inviting in people of color in the ways that you had hoped. So I, doing that audit and then um, really trying to have authentic, I, this is, I, I maintain, I think the only way the system is going to end, I really maintain this, is when we start loving each other across racial lines. That's why, you know, interracial couples and just people who are take that leap and just people who have just cross-racial friendships and, and really grow together and see each other's souls, really. Um, that Once you see a person of color's soul, I see it here this time and time again, it's really hard to go back. It's really hard to go, because racism at its heart is dehumanizing another person. It's saying you are not as fully human as me. So busting that bubble through authentic relationships, that is to me the the the, the big, big aha moment that's really going to change this over time. So I encourage people to start there. Um, well, thanks so much. I'm, I, always, I ask every guest, like, why are you in on health equity? So maybe as a, as a parting note, you can share with us, like, why this matters to you. Um, it matters to me because of my family that I grew up with. And it matters to me now, though, the most because of my daughter, who I want to grow up in a different world than the one I grew up in. And I just want her to feel safe to be the fullness of whoever she is and all that she is, um, including being um, you know, biracial in the society. But I just want her to be her. Oh, well, thank you so much. And uh uh, Dr. Brittany James, we've really enjoyed this conversation. It was packed with so much insight. Um, your brilliance and your heart shines through every time. Um, we're blessed to have you doing the work you do. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at and on Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.